my friends, you're listening to Autism and Us with me, Maisie. When my son was diagnosed with autism at the age of four, I didn't know anything about autism. Oh wait, I'd seen Rain Man in the 80s. At the beginning, I felt devastated, isolated and afraid. Diagnosis day, the darkest of my life. It wasn't the masses of written information I was given that helped me. It was sharing stories with other Spectrum parents I met along the way, giving me tips and advice, and most importantly, made me feel like I'm not alone. I am no expert and don't claim to be. I'm a parent at the start of my journey. Each episode, I will be talking to a parent or a close family member of someone with autism, and they will share their story from the early years to diagnosis to present day. Welcome to Autism and Us. Today, I'm talking to Angie. I first got into contact with Angie when I was searching Instagram for pages um, related to autism. And she has a wonderful page full of posts about her son, Ainsworth, who she affectionately calls Pooty. In this episode, Angie talks to me about her journey. And as she's in America, and I'm in the UK, we'll be conducting this interview over the phone. Angie. Hey, nice to meet you, Maisie. So I want to talk about your life um, before you had Ainsworth. So you can tell me a little bit about what you were doing, your situation in life, where you were living. Just give a bit of background uh, about yourself. Okay. um, Before I had Ainsworth, I was married to his dad and had my daughter who was right before he was born. She was five. And so they're five years apart. And um, just living that normal kind of life, her dad uh, worked in Atlanta, right outside of where we live in Athens. You know, we were just kind of living the American dream, right? Like my daughter was in Catholic school and I was a stay-at-home mom. And then I had my son. How was the pregnancy? All like plain sailing, no problems? or was- No problems, none. No problems at all. Yeah, just a normal, typical pregnancy. So right. nothing. Yeah. And no autism that we knew of in our family, like no uh, cause for concern or anything like that. So he's born and celebration, little boys join your family and you take him home. And then can you talk to me about the early years kind of from naught to two and maybe maybe the day when you thought, okay, well, something something that I didn't expect has come up. Yes, absolutely. Little Ainsworth was a very sweet baby. My daughter had been very colicky. So I thought, okay, now I've got this perfect child because my daughter screamed for the first six months of her life. And so he slept a lot and he was just an angel. And then once he started getting a little older, he just wasn't reaching those milestones. So he has what the doctors and his therapists think is early infantile autism because it's not like he ever had skills that he actually lost. He didn't regress. Whereas, you know, you hear a lot of children who all of a sudden at a certain age, they start losing language and things like that. Yeah. Like, like Charlie. So almost at four, it was like someone had taken my little boy away, but, um, this autism that uh, Ainsworth's presenting. So he, he never did babble or never spoke, spoke a word. Is that, is that right? The only time that I could hear his voice was if he cried or I remember I would tickle him so that I could hear his voice so that he would laugh because he didn't babble at all. He did no vocal play. Now he does a lot. But Mm. I mean, it was really kind of pitiful. I just realized, you know, I had to sort of tickle him just to hear his little voice because nothing. 
And when, when was the time when you kind of confided in someone thought something's not quite right? Well, it he was about 12 months old and I just started realizing my daughter had started interacting maybe around eight months with people mm-hmm. and, you know, really trying to say, hey, um, even though she was that small, she was, she was, and I kept thinking, well, maybe she's just kind of, you know, fast to do things and, you know, I shouldn't compare him to her. So he was doing none of that and he wasn't even trying to crawl or, you know, hold onto furniture and walk around. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to explore the way a normal baby would, a typical baby, I should say. Um, and then about 12 months, I remember he always wanted to swing. He always craved that vestibular motion that, you know, so many kids with autism need with their sensory to, you know, equalize their sensory system. I remember I'd have to swing with him. He wouldn't want to be in the baby swing. He wanted to be on my body all the time. And so I would have to, you know, swing with him in the big swing and hold him. And I remember my brother-in-law saying, he's like, well, you know, put that boy down. Don't you know, don't you think he wants to like, you know, explore and crawl around and play. Mm-hmm. And then I just looked at him and I was like, he, I don't know why he doesn't want to, but you know, it just kind of hit me. Somebody else saying that, like I was just, it, it kind of takes that, doesn't it? Cause you obviously mummies love goggles. You think, you know, oh, he'll do that. He'll do it at his own pace or, you know, you just don't think of it. Do you, you just think never even crossed your mind kind of thing? No, it didn't. I mean, I, I just thought he was like a clingy little, you know, mama's boy. And then it was at 15 months few months later that my mom showed me a list of all the different, the checklist for the criteria for meeting an autism diagnosis. And she had been a kindergarten teacher and, you know, I think she was kind of seeing things that I wasn't. And she just showed it to me that she had found on a neurologist's website. Right. And there was like 20 markers for it. And he met 19 out of 20. That's a lot, you know, and when he was late diagnosed, they said typically, you know, when you get a child with an autism diagnosis, a lot of times you'll see that there's, you know, maybe they'll check about half of the things, but to check that many really let the doctors know what, what they kind of guessed was that he was severe, you know, from from a very early age. The only thing I was grateful, I'm always like a, you know, glass is half full person, not that I've not struggled with it, but the only thing I didn't check was that he would withhold affection because he's a very affectionate child. And I just remember being grateful that I didn't have to check that box because to Mm -hmm. me, that's the most important one. You know, there's a part of me that was relieved and there's a part of me that just kind of felt sick, you know? So Mm -hmm. what we did to get the diagnosis, um, my sister-in-law is a pediatrician and she was amazing at kind of helping me navigate what to do. I don't know what I would have done without her because at that time, and I know there's so much talk about autism now, but he's 16, little Ainsworth. And when he was, you know, this, we're talking about 14 years ago and mm. and a half years ago, there was nothing. There's no talk of it. I remember seeing something on television about autism, you know, about a year later after he'd been diagnosed and I was stunned. Like I just dropped everything to watch it because I had not seen anything about it. And then there slowly but surely started to become a lot more talk about it as it turned into kind of more of an epidemic, you know, whether that be something in the water or better diagnoses, I don't know, but it has been comforting now. It's, you know, to hear more stories because back then I felt like I was on my own. We decided to do, uh, put tubes in his ears because just to make sure that there wasn't a hearing loss that we thought could explain his delays and, you know, 
because he wasn't responding to us. Well, it's quite common, isn't it, that we think our children have hearing problems because they're simply not kind of turning around when we're talking to them or looking like they're listening. Yeah, absolutely. We would, you know, ring a bell behind his head and he wouldn't even turn. Mm. So we did do the tubes in the ears. And then that, that, you know, when the doctor came out of the surgery, he said there was no fluid in his ears, which was upsetting because we thought, well, if it was like a ton of fluid. It could have explained a hearing loss, which would have explained a delay. Mm. Um, so then that kind of left me to choke on the fact that it was most likely autism. And uh, my sister-in-law got us an appointment up in Chapel Hill at the Teach Clinic. And at that time, they were regarded as people who could diagnose at a very early age because people did not want to diagnose before the age of four back then. And they sort of specialized in very early diagnoses. So he was... Oh, let's, I, I want to say 19 months when we wow. went up there. Yeah, he was 18 months when I called our local Babies Can't Wait is what the name of it is. It's different right. in every state, but they are an agency that, you know, just helps children who are delayed and they can get you started with therapy. So at 18 months, I called them. They did an evaluation in our home and little Ainsworth immediately met the criteria for all the services they offered, speech, OT, PT, everything. Is, is he, um, at this time, just kind of looking back, because it's, it's quite informative to know about the, a lot of the signs of the more severe end, Charlie was stimming a lot from a young age, you know, a lot of rocking, kind of the fingers are going, also vocal stimming. Um, was Ainsworth doing that at that age? Yes, he's, um, every doctor who's seen him and therapist. They always say that he is the stimmiest person they've ever treated. He's like Charlie. He's like literally, he's like the poster boy for stimming. Yeah, oh, okay. So we need to get together with Charlie. Um, because they, it's almost like he enjoys it so much as well. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 I mean, Ainsworth loves it. That is, it gives him so much happiness. And when you try to redirect his stimming to something more appropriate, he'll just stim on that. And then when you take whatever toy you give him, like, oh, let's play appropriate with this or let's you know here hold this fork he'll stem with the fork if you take away everything he'll stem with his fingers and then if you even just try to hold his hands he'll like stem with his eyes <laughs> yeah yeah well you take everything charlie will just like do this crazy vocal stimming like in the street he'll be like whoa whoa because <laughs> it feels really good and people are just looking around like what i know um, we are in therapy right now for vocal stereotypy, trying to reduce that. He's actually part of a research project at the University of Georgia, trying to reduce his vocal. Because it's quite loud. So loud. So it's not like Charlie, like, oh, it's more just like, eh, you know, and it's like, oh, my God. I mean, and, and I can handle it. And, you, and I, I posted a video of it um, yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, but he's so loud and and I love hearing his little voice when he's attempting to just kind of babble or you know bah, 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 but just that loud stimming and I just think it feels good to his throat or something oh, I don't yeah, know. totally he's very sensory and he's similar to Charlie so he's very orally kind of um fo focused isn't he so there's one great post on your Instagram that I absolutely love which is he puts a dummy in his mouth and then someone pulls it out and then he takes another dummy and he puts it in his mouth and someone pulls it out and it's just going on and on and on and on. He's like twizzling it around and it's so great. I love that. I love that video. I love it so much. I actually, we were trying to get him off of the dummy. So we would, we pierced the top of them with a pin to try to deflate them so that the sensation. And he knows, doesn't he? He knows. Yeah. 
He's trying to find one in that video where <laughs> yes. where we forgot to take out all the air and give him that suction that he's looking for. And it's just so funny because he goes through about 20 of them. He wears a little chewy necklace around his neck and um, that's to replace. He's Thank God he's off of the dummies now, but he chews on that all the time because he has such a strong... Oh, Charlie's the same. They, they mentioned to me at OT, oh, I should try chewing gum with Charlie. And I was like, no way, I couldn't. He would definitely swallow it. So he, he has a chewy, but he's still very like... Everything you give him, he'll put it in his mouth first just to kind of see, oh, okay, that's what it feels like. Yeah, so at two, he's he's stimming, maybe doing behaviours that to you at the time probably seemed like you'd never seen behaviours like that before. But obviously now your own child's doing them, which I I find quite difficult. Um, Obviously, I'm only a year into my journey and... Some of the things Charlie does, I've never seen him in my life. So, yeah. So, so he he gets diagnosed quite quickly because obviously, all the signs were there. And what happened? What happened next? Well, when he was diagnosed formally up at the, at Chapel Hill at the Teach Clinic, it was an all day evaluation, and they knew within the first five minutes that he had severe autism. Well, you know, autism, and mm-hmm. and even they could project that it would probably be severe because everything was so strong. After that, they suggested that we go to Emory's Autism Center in Atlanta, and we did like a full week training at their center, like a a family training on just kind of how to deal with it, which was great. And it was basically we were working on his communication skills, and they were just kind of helping us cope and figure out ways to structure his environment Mm -hmm. and find more opportunities for him to express himself. And Do do you remember being like exhausted because obviously um, caring for... um a child like Charlie is, yeah. you know, it can be, obviously motherhood is exhausting and everyone talks about it, but there isn't a certain type of ex- exhaustion that comes from your child not being able to sort of understand, process anything you're c- trying to teach them. So it's, do you remember at that time just being like, how am I ever going to I kind of do don't this? remember a lot from that time because I was that exhausted. So, well, I've heard that people on the spectrum, they don't produce uh, enough or, or any melatonin, which is obviously the hormone in our body that makes us feel sleepy. So they never feel sleepy. Um, so they're either awake or they're asleep, but there's no in between. So Charlie has, and it's very common, isn't it? So basically you hear a lot of spectrum mums, they've not slept. I mean, Charlie would go to bed at seven, he'll wake up at one and he'll be up till seven, eight in the morning and then sometimes not even need to go back to sleep. It's like they don't need sleep, which I find. Uh, the, uh, the same thing happened with us where he would wake up like at one in the morning and then not go back to sleep. That was up. He was up. And I was like, okay, are you never going to just get exhausted and pass out? And I remember putting him on the school bus like at eight to go to school, just thinking, I don't know how he's going to stay awake. And then they would text me and say, he had the best day he's ever had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think yeah. he be, because he was tired, it kind of reduced the STEMI behaviors and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that as well. Like, I'll send Charlie to school with no sleep, and I'll write in his book, so tired, definitely need sleep. And then he'll come home and they'll be like, so he had a really energetic day, just cooked. Um, he had a really, and I'm like, and it almost it's like his, the symptoms seem lesser because he's so tired that you can focus a bit more, which is... Yeah, I, I think it slowed his brain down enough to where he could actually hold a thought and catch up with what everybody else is doing. Yeah, that yeah. thought he had better days when he was overly tired. Um, however, you know... We don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I was... Was he on medication? Because Charlie takes melatonin every night to sleep. Doesn't keep him asleep, but helps him fall asleep. Yes. 
that I mean, our, our sons sound like twins. Yes, it's exactly what we did. It would help knock him out, but it wouldn't keep him asleep. Once he turned 14, we started a sleeping pill. I wish we had done it sooner, but that's what's kept him asleep and kept him asleep. And um, sounds dreamy. Oh, God, I know, but I think I think little Charlie might be too young for a sleeping pill. But I have to yeah. say, after that happened, I mean, he can still have insomnia. He can still have a night like that. But I mean, it's a thousand times better. Um, but melatonin, it's great. To, you know, like you said, it's great to get them down. But in the middle of the night, when you try to give them a little bit more, it just doesn't seem to matter. You know. Yeah. And you know, here it's not. Um, you can't buy over the counter in in the UK. It has to be prescribed, which is oh, okay, yeah. And it's a very difficult to get it, which is you have to fill out a sleep diary for two two weeks, which is absolutely hilarious because you know the sleep diary of Charlie's like, yeah, he didn't sleep, he didn't sleep, he didn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, no sleep for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um, when he was nineteen months and diagnosed, they suggested that he get into a full time school program immediately, which was stunning to me. He was 19 months. He was a baby. He was still drinking out of a bottle, you know? And I was like, oh my God, that's just so young. And especially because he was so clingy, I couldn't imagine him being off of my body, you know? So we, thank God, live in a college town. The University of Georgia is in the town where I live. And it's just been such a blessing to have them here as a resource and, you know, been able to all of our babysitters are special ed students, and we're just really lucky with all that. But they also have a great preschool, and the school is, you know, a state-of-the-art program, the best preschool in the state. So they have everything you could ever imagine. Like sensory. Yes, they all the sensory stuff and anything you could ever imagine. It's like a perfect setting for a child like Ainsworth, but he was the only, they would only take one special child per class. So say there's 12 children, 11 are typical, one is special. So that they wanted a special in every class just so they can train their teachers to work with him. So he had so much one-on-one care there. He had PhD students doing, you know, their dissertations on him, multiple students doing that and working with him. So I mean, he got hit hard with therapy at 18 months, going to UGA's preschool until he was three. He had every advantage, but he was still very, very severe. I I hate to imagine what he would be like without all that intervention. How does family life look? Because it's interesting with siblings of um, severely autistic children. Uh, I've heard some stories where the sibling feels almost that they have to sort of impress their parent more because they're sort of making up for or, or they feel potentially that their sibling gets more, more attention. And obviously it's not that, but it's just that they need more care. Um, so h- how how has your daughter dealt with it? Do you think she found it hard at the first or has she always been so protective and, and loving of her baby brother? I've been loving. I've been so lucky with her. For the first five years of Ainsworth's life, he wanted nothing to do with her. He would put his hand in her face and turn his head and look away and just be like, eh, eh, like every time she approached him. And it just made my heart drop. I was like, oh, that's just so pitiful because she was only five when he was born. So she was trying. By the time that we kind of knew that what we were dealing with, she was, you know, six and a half or seven. And I mean, you know, she would get her feelings hurt and ask why he didn't want to play. But she just was relentless. And I don't know why. I, I do not know why she never let up. And after about five years of him just not wanting anything to do with her, he just became her best little friend. And now, you know, she's taught him how to play. He runs around and, you know, they chase around the house. He snuggles her. He is just so sweet with her. And it's just, 
you know, it's been amazing to watch. I don't know where she got that patience, but she's never tried to act like the perfect child to try to offset the fact that I'm working mm-hmm. so hard with him. She's a great child, but she's never tried to overcompensate. She's never been in some big depression over it. She's never really complained about the extra attention he needs. But I made it a big priority that when I did get babysitting, that I was doing things with her that had nothing to do with him. So instead of getting a babysitter for Saturday night, which we would do for dinner, you know, but I would still, I would try to get him also for the daytime so that I could take her out and do things with her. And yeah. when down at night, when he would go to sleep, I'd stay up late with her and try to play with her. And I would just try to, I just remember thinking to myself, if I can just get these children older and, you know, I, I'll, I'll sleep one day, but I've got, yeah. I'll be the last one to, I remember never going to, you know, see my friends, never getting my hair cut, you know, like just basic stuff. I just let everything go. Oh yeah. I haven't got my hair cut in two years. I realized the other day. Oh, baby. <laughs> it's like down to my bum now. I know. I, I, my mind was so long. And I remember just <laughs> taking some kitchen scissors and asking my cousin just to cut a couple inches off. And she's like, oh, my God. Because <laughs> I'm somebody who cares. You know, I'm somebody who's always on top of that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I just let everything go. And I was like, I'm going to give 100% of myself to these children. And then one day I'll have a little time for myself. But she has done a great job with him. And I think she's taught him how to play. She's mm. taught love she's been amazing for him and I think it's helped him so much too do you remember sitting down and saying um your brother has autism and this is kind of what it means and or do you think she was just new you didn't have to well I kind of started talking to her about it when we saw a diagnosis coming you know before we went up to get diagnosed I started saying you know I think he's maybe a little bit special and kind of just trying to say it a little bit here and a little bit there to sort of ease her into the idea. And she knew, you know, she knew that he was acting, you know, a little bit different because she would ask like, why won't he play with me? Why won't he talk? Mm. You know? So I remember sitting her down and saying, your brother has autism. We went up to see the doctors and he has something called autism. And then I just explained it to her in very simple terms and just said, all that means the reason why he doesn't seem to want to play and, you know, he doesn't sleep as well. And he's kind of fussy explained, you know, that that was his autism and what he was dealing with and how we could help him. I was like, he still wants to be your brother. He still wants to play with you, even though he didn't act like he wanted to at the time, you know, he might just do things a little bit slower, but he'll eventually do more and more. And then she said, well, what if he never gets normal? And I was like, you know, he may never get what you consider to be normal, but he's going to be him and he's going to be the best he can be. And you can't worry about that. You just have to love him for who he is. We'll help him as much as we can and we'll see what happens. I I started wondering, why is it that children with autism bond more with adults than with children? Because, you know, naturally children usually really gravitate toward other children. And I started, you know, researching that and it was because the parents and the adults and the caregivers in their life They have all the good stuff. They're the ones who have the passies. They're the ones who have the candy, the cookies, the juice boxes, you know, the the STEM toys. They've got all that stuff. So they're sort of the keeper of all good things. So I started giving Harper every time that Ainsworth would fuss, I would say, you, you be the one to give him the passy here. You know, when it's, you know, time for his bottle, when he was little, you go give him the bottle. If he wanted to go outside or wanted a toy, she was the one to let him outside or give him the toy. So I wanted to, you know, have him equate her with, Oh, she's there's a reason for her. She's useful to me. Like yeah. maybe I have attention to her. and I really think that helped. That's really good advice. 
it's very hard for little Ainsworth to be just to pick him up and take him somewhere else. Oh, yeah. So, it, I mean, he's kind of happiest here in his own little environment. Everything's set up for him. Everything's safe here for him. Um, there's swings outside. There's swings inside. There's a hammock inside, one outside. There's a trampoline inside, a little one inside, you know, outside. You've got all the, you need, all the setup, yeah, everything he needs. Yes, we have fenced in front yard, backyard, a sensory room. So it's just kind of hard to take that show on the road, really. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime I take little Ainsworth somewhere, like on vacation, I I feel like I always sort of live to regret that. Anytime we go to the beach or whatever, I mean, Mm. he might be happy a little bit, but it's hard. So how does does Ainsworth communicate? What was the, how do you, how does he get his needs met or known? Well, because he is very severe on the spectrum Mm. he has he struggles a lot with you know like a voice output box or sign language it's hard for him to do sign language because his fine motor skills are really weak he can't you know tie his shoes that kind of thing Uh, charlie's the same i think his learning difficulty means that to kind of teach him something like the dino vox or is going to be hard yes so we we've tried multiple communication devices and it just none of them seem to really work, and he's kind of little Ainsworth, sort of a mystery. When he's he's in therapy at UGA, and all of the professors over there who are research kind of professors, they really scratch their heads a lot when they, you know, sit there and brainstorm about him because he's just so different. That you know, he's just he's just a tough nut to crack. It's really hard for them to figure out what's <laughs> going to work best for him because the one minute you start going down one road with him and he starts doing okay and then he just stops, you know, and yeah. and it's everything's kind of been a struggle, but what he uses to communicate now is more of just a hybrid system where He's working on his voice output box just for basics, like eating, going outside, the things that motivate him the most. He does a few signs, like for eat and drink. Mainly, he will pull you to what he wants, you know, and we're trying to stop all that dragging you around the house kind of thing. But, I mean, he can get his needs met. He can, you know, if we try to encourage him to, you know, like I said, use pecs, use the voice output. I mean, we're still working with pecs, too. So, we're doing all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And... At the end of the day, the way he's going to communicate, the way he's going to initiate is just going to be to grab you and pull you around the house. Yeah. Show you what he wants and gesture. But I I have to say... I mean, that's a skill though, isn't it? I mean, that's a skill that Charlie doesn't have yet. And and he'll get that because I remember thinking back then when he was Charlie's age, oh my God, I wish instead of just sitting there crying, I wish that he could just show me, you know, because he was a very you know, sad little toddler. He had definitely had happy moments, but he was so frustrated because he couldn't even just get up and open up a cabinet and get something to eat. Or even say what was wrong. Like sometimes they're just crying and you're just like, what is No, that's the worst. To me, that's the worst part of autism when they're crying and they're nonverbal and you have no clue. And you try all the comfort items and nothing works. And you're like, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. And you know, I was talking to my mum the other day and we were we were laughing about it. Obviously, you you have to laugh sometimes, but it's almost like Charlie needs a doctor for every part of his body because he doesn't like to wear shoes and he obviously doesn't like his nails cut. So I have to creep into his bed at night, cut his nails. He has a special like foot doctor for shoes. And then obviously he can't go to the hairdresser because he doesn't like being having his hair cut. So he needs a special hair. It's like, it's like every single part of their body is 
needs tending to. Yeah, so, so much like Ainsworth. We do a lot of grooming at night. I actually have my friends laugh so hard because I've got this big headlamp like a surgeon. And I wear these. I ordered it. <laughs> Ordered it off of the internet, so I have this big headlamp, and I have these magnifying glasses. And at nighttime, I, you know, do manicure. Yeah, that's what I do. I go with my iPhone light, and I'll yeah. have like a podcast, and I'll do like yeah, his hair, and then I'll check every part of his body because sometimes he'll have like a really bad cut that I won't seen that goes really bad. Yeah, or splinter, splinter or splinter. even there. Yeah, so that, yeah, we do all the grooming. I, I clean his teeth. I mean, we. You know, everything we do while he's asleep. I don't know how he sleeps through it, but he does. Here, let me just suggest this for the hair. We found a sweet barber who's the nicest guy, and he stays open after hours for Ainsworth. So that's really nice. And he's been with, he's been doing his hair since he was a baby, but he lets us come in like a last appointment of the day because I just, he wouldn't care. He would take him any time of the day, but I just relax a little bit more when it's just not crazy busy. Yeah. If Ainsworth starts running around the place, you know, but now Ainsworth will sit in the chair like a good boy and just get his hair done. He might kind of get up and run around for one second, but he'll go right back. Yeah. He needs movement breaks. Bring him a milkshake, you know, have have everything ready, be prepared, you know, yeah. the best I can. It's all about preparation. So I was really nervous to take Charlie out when he regressed and because I didn't know anything about autism and I was really nervous because he'd be melting down and sort of attacking me quite a bit when we'd go out. But obviously he was just having sensory overload and just couldn't cope. But now, yeah, it is really just spending time with each other. So now I have my little like bag of tricks. I'll have like fidget things, straws. He loves playing with straws, snacks, like diaper change, like everything just... So I'm just fully prepared and I feel really confident now because if people stare or they say, what's wrong with him? I say, well, he's got autism. Yeah, so, yeah, that's that's one thing I don't worry about. I I do have like you, you have like a permanent diaper bag basically with yeah. the kid with stuff. And now that's converted into you know Ainsworth's backpack or whatever. But that backpack has got all kinds of stuff in it. And that's you know I feel comfortable with him leaving with a snack, a drink, his emergency medicine, a change of clothes, stem items, his ID. You know everything he needs is in there. And and that's going to be the way it always is. And that, that gives mm-hmm. you a lot of comfort too. But we, I was walking down the street in London, and I saw a place called Ainsworth's, and I was like, what? And I walked into it. It's a homeopathic place. I had no idea what it was. It was like in the heart of London, like in Mayfair, you know, off of the busy street. We yeah. were walking to a friend's house, and I was like, what is this? And so I walked in. I was like, I had to just walk in. My son's name is Ainsworth, and I never hear that name. No, I never heard it. Yeah, and so when I walked in, I could tell, you know, it was a homeopathic place. You could just see everything around. And I walked out of that place with some sort of remedy for children with autism. And I was like, well, that's a sign from God. That makes you believe in God if you never did. You know, I walk into a place that has my son's name on it. And I walk out with medication for a child struggling with autism. But, you know, you hear the leaky gut and all that. And we had done the diets and... Mm. It did no good for my son. I'm sure they do. They do well for others, but not with, not with Ainsworth. So, um, it was a um, it's secretin or secretin. Not quite sure the way you pronounce mm-hmm. that. But I had read about that when I've done research before, and um, this woman who's great over there was telling me about it. And she said a lot of times children who have not had a lot of success with the gluten free, casein free diet, yeah, 
do really well with this. And it's this tiny little pill, and I probably shouldn't be endorsing a product, you know, but it's this tiny little sweet pill that tastes good that I just put in this juice. Yeah. And it is the one thing that I've seen fast and hard results with. Now, this this would be different really? probably for anybody, but it, it I swear, I, we, we've tried medicine since he was age five that never really seemed to do much good at all. And then all of a sudden, we give him this, and we started this a couple of years ago, about two years ago. And within 10 days, he started going to the potty by himself all the time. Whereas for him to independently go sit on the toilet, I'd probably seen him do that twice in, in his life. He went from me having to constantly take him to the toilet to him initiating it on his own. So basically, it potty trained him. The second thing that I noticed besides the potty training yeah. was his receptive language skills immediately got better. Wow. And I mean, it like just turned a corner and where I would say something and he would act on it. And I would be, you know, I've always talked to him a lot conversationally, even though obviously he's not replying, but I'm thinking he's understanding some of it, especially yeah. the repetitive things that I say over and over again. But he started acting on things that I would ask him that were a lot more specific. They weren't just necessarily repetitive routine things that he's always hearing. So he's kind of memorized almost what that means. Yeah. So, I would say, oh, go go take that shirt to your room. And then I would notice that he would do it. And I was just stunned. And so many things for him, including his receptive language, got better taking that. Now, it could be that he just turned a corner. The only thing I know is that it was right at the time that we started yeah, that. Yeah, so it could be a coincidence. It could be that thing. You've got to find the name of it just so um, the listeners can listen out for it. It's S. Let me see. E-C-R-E-T-I-N, secretin. Secretin, yeah. Okay, well, hmm. maybe I'm going to hit up Ainsworth for some secretin. Hit up Ainsworth and go try. I mean, what could it hurt? I do notice that his receptive language has gotten better. You know, I don't know. So many people will say, oh, I bet he understands everything you say. I don't know. I don't know if he does or not. But what I do know is that the things that are very routine, he understands that. You know, the yeah. things are like, no, you can't do that. Yes, you can do this. You need to sit down. You need to do this. You know, I love you. Like, he gets all of that. Yeah. Um, if if he were listening to this podcast right now, I don't know how much he would pick up on. You know, maybe all of it. Let's talk about Pooty. <laughs> yeah. When did this name come around? And also, can we talk about Pooty's grooming and his beauty regime? Because it's quite a big thing on the, on the gram. Uh, the face masks, uh, the self-care that he likes to indulge in. Um, so, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that because I'm I'm literally wanting to go for pooty booty. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. Well, okay. So when he was a baby, he would nurse just around the clock. And in retrospect, I think it's probably because, you know, he had early infantile autism and he loved to, you know, that suction. And he used to me as a passy almost. I mean, I just remember. Yeah, sensory. So, yes, it was just ridiculous how much he wanted to nurse. You may not like this answer, but I was watching HBO and I would just watch movies. I was on, you know, just sort of stuck on the sofa all day long. You know, these are the days before the cell phones were popular. I mean, I didn't have a cell phone. So I would just sit there and watch TV and nurse. And I got hung up on this Chris Rock movie called Pootie Tang. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Do you know oh, yeah, of course. 
the dumbest movie out there. But it, I just, it was so funny to me. You know, it means, I think it's a little rude word, isn't it? What does it mean? Over here, pooty just means poop, like passing gas. I don't, you know. Oh, like, it's does poop. it? Yes, oh, like, um, yeah, like a poot. And the name Ainsworth was such a big name for a baby, you know, yeah. for to be holding a little one-month-old baby and to call him Ainsworth, it just, it seemed like he needed a nickname, so somehow Pootie just stuck. It's like Charlie's is Hoobie, and it's because there's a show here called The Hoobs, because it was the only show that he would watch because there was bright colours on the screen that would kind of slowly move around. And we used to be like, oh, he loves the hoobs. Oh, look at him watching the hoobs. And I was like, hoobie, hoobie. So, yeah, everyone calls him hoobs or hoobie. But then the beauty routine, I have to say, (laughs) (laughs) he's a beautiful child, just like Charlie should be a model. He is really, like, gorgeous. No, I'm not just saying that. He really is handsome, handsome boy. I mean, he's naturally, I think, beautiful. But he also, I feel like if he is dressed you know perfectly and his hair's always fixed and you know he's always scented he's always got like air may on like people see him coming and they want to get their hands on him because he's just so cute he's wearing the same clothes that all those other kids in school are wearing he's got like the yeezys and like (laughs) levi's i mean i am not gonna let his just because he doesn't understand about a sense of fashion doesn't mean the rest of the world doesn't get it. So I, I do know parents where you see a lot of kids, you know, in the classes with them and, you know, and they're wearing really easy things to get them in and out of, you know, like mm-hmm. sweatpants. And I mean, you know, Pootie wears that too, but it's always going to be something to love. I've even had that on my Instagram where moms would say, oh, you know, that's, you don't need to do all that for him. And I'm like, well, you know what? He may not know, but what he does know is the reaction that he gets. So the reaction is everything. He thinks he's a movie star. When he walks into the room, he had to, at one point, at a school he went to before the one he's in now, the girls would attack him in the lunchroom. The typical kids, not the special kids. They would come up and try to kiss him and hug on him. And he had to learn how to, that's when he learned how to do high fives because he was getting so overwhelmed by these girls coming up and kissing him and going crazy on him that he learned how to kind of high five everybody to get them kind of out of his bubble. And how, how did your Instagram get so big? Like, you've got over 10,000 followers. That's another thing. Is it simply Pootie and his movie star looks? And how did it... I think so. I think so. I started a year ago. I've written a book that's not published yet. And, well, I hope it gets... We're going to get that book published. Don't you worry. I know. I want to get it published. And I've... What's it called? It's called Black Cloud Nine. So it's sort of a play on words with Black Cloud and Cloud Nine. Mm. And it's my approach it's it's about my life and, and even my life outside of autism but the crux of the book is living happily with autism and how it's made my life better how I mean I'm 10 times happier now that I have my son than I was 20 years ago without him but I, there's no question and he's added so much value and joy and happiness to my life so much meaning he's changed my priorities for the better he's made me a better person he's made all of us better and so it's just been a privilege and a pleasure to have him as my son. When he first got diagnosed, like I said, there was not a lot of talk about it in the media. And it was upsetting to me that everything that I did see was so negative. When they finally mm. started having like little documentaries, it would I remember seeing these two women who were just crying and there was a trampoline in the background that looked like it was about to cave in and their boys were just jumping, kind of violently jumping, you know. <laughs> and, Angry jumping. 
yes, angry jumping. And the mamas were just like, we can't take these kids anywhere. This is like the most depressing life. Like they're, this is horrible. Like this is all they do. And, you know, we don't even want them to go in public and our lives are over and everything was just so negative. And thank God things are changing and you see a lot more positive things in the media. And I still feel like there's a lot lacking there for people understanding I don't want people to feel sorry for us. I, I think people should envy me, you know, like, and I mean, sure. you. I mean, you've got this precious angel and you, I'm sure you don't want any pity because you're loving your life. I mean, it's a struggle. Yeah. I mean, I want people to understand. I want people to understand the struggle, at one, you know, not, not for the pity, but to understand the struggle to then have acceptance to educate and also to have acceptance. And also, you know, you tell so many people, well, my son's autistic and they, you know, they don't quite know what to say. And I think that's not their fault. But again, like we, like you saying, these children, they bring so much purpose. You know, I think society's split between useful people and people who aren't useful. And I think that's how we see people. But, you know, these children, they will bring a, hold a mirror up to anyone and you'll have to look deep inside yourself and think, what kind of person am I? Then you have a child with autism and you really, you get stripped down and you know what you're made of, you know? Yeah. It's, it's different for sure. I really was motivated by that. We actually filmed a reality show, a, a, a TV pilot, and it never made it farther than the pilot because we knew going in that the producers told us that this is going to be a hard thing to sell. At the end of the day, people want to put their feet up and relax have a drink and not watch child struggle. And I was like, I want to present something else. I want people to see that we are having the time of our lives with him, that he brings something to the table every day that nobody else does. We went to LA and pitched it. And I had a production company, a great one behind me and the USA network commissioned a pilot, but it, and the pilot was so strong and it was so good. But at the end of the day, it's just hard thing to sell. Yeah. But I think it's important what you say, like, I want to, it's, is that difficult? Because I think people who don't live it are like, oh, you shouldn't laugh. Why are you laughing? And it's like, you have no idea. Once you get over that grief stage and once you get full acceptance, I mean, Charlie is absolutely hilarious, some of the stuff that he does. You couldn't pay, for, you couldn't find this stuff anywhere. I mean, we're in fits of laughter sometimes, what he does. And it's just, you know, sometimes it's hard for Charlie to be his true self in front of people who doesn't know, because obviously his autism brings the anxiety as well. But when people do put the time in, and that's my big thing, you know, you've got to put the time in with, with him. You can't just talk to him once oh he's not said anything oh, I'll give up you've got to come around every day and then you'll enjoy you'll you'll soon see the the hilarity how how special he really is but that is why I I wrote the book because I wanted to create awareness when I felt like okay this isn't working out with this one avenue so I'm going to go another so that was why I wrote it because I really want to send that message not just of awareness and appreciation but also celebration. So where people understand that his life is every bit as important. I, I had a friend of mine suggest that he be put into some sort of institution when he was nine years old. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, how dare you think that my son, just because he's not typical, like your son is less important and less loved. And he was like, well, it would give Harper a better life if she didn't have to deal with this. And I was like, you know, if, if Pootie went into an institution 
my daughter and I would just as soon be dead or we just go with him. If I could do anything before I die, it would just be to promote like a different understanding of these children because I think people put them in a box and I get that. I probably did the same before I had a child who was special. You know, you just, I used to think that special children were either kind of too happy or too sad. I don't know what you thought. Charlie, but I thought they're either like laughing and drooling or they're crying and rocking. Like, yeah, you're just so you're just so uneducated, aren't you? I just from like even as children at school, we were never had like we had sex education, but we didn't have like disability education. Like this is what autism is or this is what cerebral palsy is like. You just have no idea. And I think that's where I think that needs to change like big time. Yeah. And that's and that's what I've tried to do through the Instagram, too, is just yeah. show people. I mean, I could easily show the struggles, too, but I want to show the happy part and really I do feel like it's just the way you approach these children like like I do with like you know the little fashion therapy and just showering him with praise I feel like so much of the time these children are being told no you know and they're being redirected they're being redirected you're doing it wrong not like this like let's try to get you to engage appropriately well when you have a child who functions the way my son does, it's very hard to get them redirected. I mean, we we can do it, but it's hard 24-7 to keep that child engaged appropriately. And then I started thinking, who cares, you know, about what's appropriate? As long as he's got his clothes on, as he's not being somebody, as long as he's towing the line and he's, you know, using a fork and using the potty, I'm going to let him relax and be himself sometimes. He is in a very structured, therapy-driven environment. However, he is allowed to be himself and he is celebrated for who he is, not who we want him to be. So he is praised all day long. It's not just when he uses the potty or just when he meets a therapy goal. Such a good point because I I see a lot of parents and it's, you know, sometimes no fault of their own. You know, when will my child do this? How can I make my child do this? And it's that acceptance of your child may never do that, but what they're doing makes them happy. So why stop them? Absolutely. I uh, One day I was at a Chinese restaurant and I cracked open a fortune cookie that said acceptance is the key to happiness. And it just, I, don't, I started crying, you know, and I was like, mm. that's so true. I mean, I can't, he is born with autism. He will die with autism. He can make a lot of progress along the way. But at some point you just have to let them be, you know, he's a boy first and then he has autism. That's some part of him. That's a big part of him, but you just have to give yourself a break and let him, you know, you'll go crazy if you try sun up to sundown. Yeah. 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 And you're not that, you know, a lot of the time, you you know, you do your bit, but just always good to remember, you're not the therapist, you're their mum. You're their mummy. First and foremost, you're their mum. And you know, I'm going to take a lot from this because I'm going to, I do, I've started to praise Charlie all the time. You're so handsome. You're so clever. And he loves it. He literally loves the big smile. He's confident. And I think these children are for, you know, they're not for the breaking, they're for the making. I've noticed with the way that we treat Pootie, like I said, he has this glow and this happiness. And a lot of teachers who, you know, were, he's, he's considered the most severely autistic child in our county. Mm-hmm. So the teachers are always amazed by how loving he is and how happy he is. As much as he struggles cognitively or struggles to communicate certain things, he's just such a happy child. And at the end of the day, 
that's all you can really ask for, you know? And so I think that using that approach of, instead of just always saying no, choosing mm. your battles and letting them express themselves is so important. And I think that, you know, it's just interesting to see a child as significantly autistic as my son is to be cocky and bossy and have an attitude. Like we kind of love that about him because it gives him, you know, it, 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 he's not just autism. He has a, he has a personality, personality and it's just it's hilarious you know he's just completely confident you know and I think a lot of it is we're lucky in a way because he is more severe so he doesn't struggle with the peer pressure and the anxiety Mm -hmm. of what other people think he doesn't care at all what other people think so in a way we're lucky with that piece but yeah so it's just it's just been just I think your attitude of just not comparing them to other children their age and just seeing them for what they bring to the table and kind of think about life and the culture differently. Not everybody's going to be the same. That's a good thing. Well, Angie, thank you so much. Um, And and, and let's get this um, book published. So Black Cloud Nine. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to, I'd love to read it and I'm certainly going to help you with getting that that book published because I think it's really important and um, your take on it and how you've coped and how you are as a family has really inspired me. So thank you so much. I had so much fun talking to you. Autism is a spectrum condition. All autistic people share certain difficulties, but being autistic will affect them in different ways. Some autistic people also have learning disabilities, mental health issues, or other conditions, meaning people need different levels of support. All people on the autism spectrum learn and develop. With the right sort of support, all can be helped to live a more fulfilling life of their own choosing. To learn more about autism, you can visit the National Autistic Society website on autism.org.uk. This podcast was created, written, and edit produced by me, Maisie Clater. And the music that you hear in this podcast was written and produced by Kit Milsom, who also records and edits the show. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, maybe even write a little review and rate us.